Welcome to the Here Be Dragons podcast. My name is Brett Landry, and on this episode, we have part two of our time with Dr. Margaret Cottle, where uh, we sit down and do a question and answer with her following her lecture on euthanasia, medical assistance in dying, physician-assisted suicide, palliative care, and how Christians might respond to this issue in our context in this moment of history. Hope you enjoy. Well, thank you very much, first of all. Welcome. Um, this to me, uh, and I don't know why I'm not a particularly, I would not do well as a palliative care doctor. <laughs> uh, in fact, when I was in uh, a church planting assessment thing where they see if you're crazy enough to be a church planter, uh, one of my references, believe it or not, he was the best man in my wedding, filled in the paperwork and he said, if I'm going into battle, I want no one but Brett with me. If I'm in the hospital, send somebody else. (laughs) So I I think I've softened a little since having three daughters, and um, I think pastoral ministry softened me. Yeah. Uh, Because you have the the privilege of sitting with people at this stage of life at times. And as a younger church, that isn't always the case here, uh, but certainly within the connections. And so for me, this has always been an emotional topic. And I've heard you lecture before where you dropped some of these things in, and and uh, I was doing quite fine until you started quoting Frodo and yeah. Samwise and you bring in Lord of the Rings and I, now I struggle. Yeah. Um, I have a number of questions in terms of, of what you would think about the way we as a community, you know, uh, which you began to touch on mm-hmm. toward the end, uh, just the way that we can do that. I, I want to go through a few questions first that have come in through text because I think there's some that are, are um, about the, the all of them that I've got so far are very helpful. I'll say that. So thank you very much for sending them in. Um, the first one was, how would you speak to a person without a Christian worldview about the worth of human life? Yeah. Can you prove the worthiness of life uh, without uh, utilization or not on the basis of the Bible? How do you, how do you handle that? Um, that's a, it's a difficult question because I think uh, everybody has a, a philosophical base. So you can you can make the arguments, but it does come back to what what my faith is that that is there. But out in the public square, what I talk about is I say I think we're all members of the human family. That's the way I put it, and that everybody that that when we look back, it's Margaret Somerville's thing about the lack of uh, memory and imagination. That when we look back, and and her all of her stuff is completely secular, and we say. What, is it, what do we have to believe if we say there are some lives that aren't worth living? That's the question I think that's really important. So, yes, this person feels like he's suffering. Yes, he may only have two weeks to live. Uh, yes, this person may have this or that or the other thing, but uh, may have a disability and thinks he needs to be dead and all of these other things. But what is it? And, and we would like to prevent him from taking his own life and come alongside him. But real autonomy is when that person goes out behind the barn and shoots himself. It's not when we say as a society, oh, yeah, there will be some of these these people that are going to want that. And we should set it up so that we pay for it with our tax dollars. And we, we make sure that nurses are going to come in and start the IV and doctors will come and give the injections. There's... Can you see the, the difference between that? It's, it's, we've made this a big societal thing. And yes, um, it's not necessarily everybody's going to say that, well, I just don't believe that all human life is, is, uh, 
is is equal and equally worthy of our protection. Well, and then sometimes you just have to say, well, then we're doomed to repeat some of the atrocities that we've done in the past. And it's interesting when Jerry Brown, the governor of California, signed the law that came in down there, uh, he had worked with Mother Teresa. And he knew about all human life being valuable, working with her in the gutter. But the thing that made him sign that bill was he said, I know, but I might want it for myself one day. And it was interesting when Washington State was having their referendum in 2008, I went down and did some speaking. And I could say to people, you know, philosophically, can you see that this might be something that philosophically you could support, but that it makes really poor sense in a public health standpoint or as public policy? And people would say, well, maybe you're right. Now, I don't get that response. It's just like, well, I don't care. I want it for me. So there's, a, there's been a real kind of shift to uh, being a bit more selfish, shall I say, about this, you know, self-interested. And um, I, I, I think you can make, uh, I, you can Google me and you can see talks that I've given in a secular setting. I've made these different points. But um, ultimately, you have to be convinced inside yourself, too. Um, the... You're doing well sending in questions. They're buzzing through as I'm trying to read them. Just give me a break. No, they're, they're coming in very well. Um, one of the questions is, uh, what do you think of palliative care doctors acting as what they called maid assessors? Maid assessors and providers. Okay. Well, <clears throat> I think in terms of maid providers, uh, it's, again, it's just like any doctor, any doctor who's willing to give a lethal injection you know, it's not. It's certainly not what came out of Hippocrates, and it's, uh, in my opinion, it's not part of healthcare. I'm with the doctor from Alberta who said, "Why don't we let the military do it?" You know, or the ethicists do it, or the Supreme Court justices do it. You know, people who have not actually had to sit there at the bedside and realize how complicated things are. Now, as far as made assessors, you have to have two of those. Um, I will not do that because that's a bridge too far for me. But there are colleagues of mine who will do that because they feel like they, they want to give a really good assessment. And they want the person not just to go down the checklist. To be honest, here in British Columbia, it's easier to get made than it is to get home oxygen or workers' comp. There's, there's deeper um, forms that you have to fill out and assessments that have to be made with backup stuff to get home oxygen or, or workers' comp than there are to get made. So, you know, um, I, I think everybody has to, to find his or her own level with that. I'm not telling other people what to do, but that's kind of where I draw the line. Uh, are physicians being pressured or forced to provide this? Um... Okay. They're not being pressured at this moment to actually do the injection. But they're being pressured in, for example, there's a lawsuit in Ontario that they're being pressured that if someone comes to you and says, I want to have this, that you are to refer the person to make what's called an effective referral. You are to refer the person to someone you know will provide it. Not just, oh, here's some information, um, not having a central number that the person can call. You have to make what's called an effective referral. And so the other place that there's been a lot of pressure is that 
those of us in palliative care remember the days when people were afraid of us. They said, oh, you know, you're going to hasten my death, your doctor death coming. And so we really wanted, most of us, really wanted to have this completely separated from our palliative care units. So nobody is going to be afraid to come there because they might get a lethal injection. And the, the government just said, no, you have to, and even hospices that raise half their money from charity, no, you have to let people in. And if you're in a hospice, you can't get an IV for, you know, antibiotics or anything else. You have to go out of the hospice to get it. But they'll send a nurse in to the hospice to start the IV so you can get your lethal injection. And I had a call when they, and then the, they've, so far exempted the faith-based institutions, but they're getting terribly pounded about this because they're saying that, well, you know, this is public money and everything. I got a phone call from a producer at CBC, and she wanted me to come down and talk about why should St. Paul's be allowed to be not have made there. And I said, well, you know, people who don't want to have euthanasia, they pay their taxes too, and they deserve to have a euthanasia-free zone where they can go and just not be afraid that anybody's going to ask them or in a weak moment when they ask for it's going to provide it, that they're going to stand the ground and be, and, and, you know, be like Sam was to Frodo. Uh, and um, she says to me, well, you don't get the, the to decide which hospital the ambulance takes you to. And I said, well, that's... The, you know, that doesn't mean anything. If you come to Burnaby Hospital, we send you to the cancer agency for your radiotherapy all the time. And, you know, there's, there's no reason why you can't go in an ambulance someplace else. She says to me, well, what if you're, you're too sick to move? Okay, think about that a minute. And I said to her, think about what you just said to me. You just said to me that it would be a shame if the person died before we got a chance to kill him. I mean, basically, that's what it is. You know, if you're too sick to move, that's what it's about. So, uh, you know, this whole thing that uh, we have, you, you don't get radiotherapy every place. You don't get heart surgery every place. You don't get lots of things every place. It would be so easy to have one of these centers of excellence, and I use that in inverted commas, where you had, where you had a thing where if people wanted this, they could go there. They could have assessors who were trained to look for coercion, who were trained to look for social determinants of disease that were causing this to them to want this, that they would have a nice space for the families. Uh, you know, they could have a hookup where the hearse could come in. You know, all of these things could happen in that space, and nobody in the other places would worry. But, oh, no, it has to go into every facility. It's just, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. I appreciate your sense of humor <laughs> that comes with it. I think it, it's, it's... It's a little bit macabre. We don't... You know, we're, well, we're not used to talking about death. Yeah. And, uh, and there's times where you go, oh, my goodness, she just said that out loud. <laughs> and then you giggle, and it's okay. And yeah. it, we, we can come with you. So I thank you for well, that. I say that, that the Victorians were... We talk about death the way the Victorians talked about sex. They talked about death all the time. They had all these things about death, but nobody talked about sex. So we're, we've just reversed it. You know, you can't go, you can't go anywhere without hearing the other three letter word, but death, you know, heaven help us. And nobody's seen people die. I mean, I had, I had a woman one time whose husband was dying and she came out of the room and she said to me, how am I going to know when he's dead? You know, it's not like it used to be when you were in the farmhouse and they had grandma in the living room and everybody was around and then they laid her out on the kitchen table and fixed her up. You know, people were with that. And the interesting thing when I was working in Nova Scotia is people who 
uh, were from the Annapolis Valley who were farmers were so much easier to talk to. They knew that you couldn't always cure an animal and that we're, we're, we're animals. There's uh, a television show we were watching where a person who was not a vegetarian was taking great offense to a chicken being killed. <clears throat> it's Survivor, for those of you who still remember, remember that show. We watch it still. And, and, um, and, and we're watching it with our, our kids, and it's, it, the ridiculousness of she still wanted to eat the chicken. She just didn't want to see it die. Yeah, I'm kind of like that with lobster. Okay. Now, I grew up in a farming community. Yeah. I grew up in a farming community where there, death is a reality of life. Yeah. And yet we can live in a sanitized situation where you can go through your whole life and never see anything die. Yeah. You know, unless you swat the mosquito on your own, you can yeah. really avoid death. Yeah. Um, this question. Okay. I heard in 2017 that there was an ethics paper published regarding those suitable for being doctors. Yeah. And in an essence, trying to eliminate Christians from this field. Have you heard of this? Yes. published? Yeah. And, and if so, can you speak on how Christians should approach a career in medicine? Okay, that's that's a really good question. The paper was written by um, a, a an ethicist, not a doctor, an ethicist from Queen's University named Udo Schuklenk, and another ethicist from the UK by the last name of Savalescu. And they actually said that no one in any of the health professions should be allowed into training programs if they were not willing to perform everything that was legal. So if you weren't willing to, it doesn't matter if you wanted to be an ophthalmologist, if you weren't willing to perform abortions and do euthanasia, then you were not, we're not going to train you because this is our public health system. And if, if something is legal, it's right. Now we know that that's hogwash. Okay. And we, even within our own country, we had forced sterilization of people who, uh, of both indigenous people and also people who had lower IQs. We've done all kinds of things, residential schools. That was legal. So does that mean that everybody should have done that? There's lots of reasons that that's there, but, um, there are some, there, there were some things that were in the medical school, um, uh, admissions process in a couple different universities that we've been kind of following. Uh, one was they, you know, they were just, one was a, a station in that they have multiple mini interviews at these things. It's not just a panel that interviews you. And one was a, a patient who wanted to have euthanasia and they kept pushing this student to, you know, how are you going to help me get this set up? So there, and there's other questions that where they're trying to weed out the Christians. So the uh, Canadian Physicians for Life has actually partnering with pre-med students to help them figure out how to um, weather some of these storms. You know, nobody wants anybody to lie. And in fact, I know one student who was going for his residency in a particular field and said, they said, well, you know, there's a kind of controversial some of the things you believe. And he says, I'm saying it right out because I'm not, if they take me, they're going to take me with, with my beliefs. They're not, it's not going to be like I hit it. They're going to say, oh, well, we didn't know that. I told you right in my interview. He got a job. But, you know, it's just, it's, it's pretty scary. But one of the things that's going to come out on that Realm uh, website, is that what it called? Okay, is, is a paper that I, I gave a talk last year at the Regent Pastors Conference about the call, I call it sounding the trumpet. So what can churches do to help the medical professionals in their, uh, in their midst? And I based it on Nehemiah where he's, everybody's working on the wall and he says, Just, we'll sound the trumpet and wherever there's a problem, you know, we'll come and help you and you come and help us. We are 
on the wall right now. And we're being pushed back to all these things. And, and pro- it's under the guise of professionalism and indoctrination. And if you get to med school when you're trying to drink out of the fire hydrant just to learn all these enzymes and medications and everything, you're not going to be able to figure that out. So within the church, you can talk to your young people about how important and foundational that life is sacred and needs to be protected. That's got to be kind of number one. Um, we live in uh, an, uh, I mean, unprecedented times in terms of medical technology yeah. and keeping people alive. This is a question that speaks to that and says, can you talk about the extraordinary lengths that medical treatments go to to keep patients alive and how that factors into end-of-life care? Mm-hmm. Is it possible that the popularism of euthanasia is, over, is an overreaction to the artificial resuscitation norms in healthcare? Um, 20 years ago, that would have been the case. I think it's that the general public is still kind of lagging behind in terms of thinking that that's what happens. They are way happier to turn you off now than they ever were before. So this idea that somehow they're wanting to prolong your life, if you look at what's been going on in the courts, it's people that are saying, I don't want the plug pulled. My per- my loved one wouldn't want the plug pulled. You know, they uh, there's still something happening here, all of these kinds of things. There's this artificial prolongation is is very seldom happening now. I would say, to be honest, I see people giving up faster, uh, more, partly because of the resources, too. You know, the resources are, are tight, and uh, they just do that. Now, there are some people where it's hard to know, okay? If you've got cancer, there's kind of a trajectory. But let's say you've got um, pulmonary disease, lung disease, or a cardiac disease. And those ones, cancer has kind of a trajectory that's like this. But cardiac disease, they have, you know, be going along and then boom, you have an episode. And then you come up a little ways and you go along, boom. And nobody knows what the, when that last one is going to be so much. So it's much harder to predict it. And people would say, gosh, if I had looked back on it, I might have decided I didn't want to, I wanted to have my defibrillator taken down or whatever earlier but you don't know that, and that's kind of hindsight. So having the conversations, I think the best thing that you can do is to have conversations. Don't try an advanced directive because that just, it doesn't help. There's always going to be something that you can't figure out. Let's say you said, I never want to be intubated. Well, then you go to the ER. You've got some simple little thing. They give you a medication, and you have anaphylaxis, so you can't breathe. And it says right on your chart, well, don't intubate. And you you know, intubate me now. I only need it for 15 minutes. So, but if you've got somebody who's your power of attorney, not maybe power of attorney, or just who's your substitute decision maker, and it's in a hierarchy. So if you don't want the person that is that way by law, then get yourself a representation agreement. But if, you know, that person needs to know what your wishes would tend to be, and then they act on what your wishes were, not necessarily on what the person himself thinks might be best. But if you're the one telling the person what your wishes are, here's a big thing. Say, this is what I think I'd like, 
but I trust you to make good decisions for me. Because if the person says, I never want to go to the hospital, I want to die at home, this is my dying wish, and then something horrible happens, like they have a ginormous bleed or something, you just can't take care of them at home, that person lives the rest of his life saying, I didn't fulfill my dad's dying wish. Instead of the dad saying, I trust you, and if it's okay, and it all works out, I'd like to stay home, but, you know, I... uh, uh, I trust you to make the wise choice. Um, this question, I think, maybe goes back historically before it was uh, legal. And in conversations with people, there have been times where it's been brought up that uh, there were physicians who were doing this before. Yeah. So prior to it being legal and even maybe more importantly socially acceptable, um, how, many, how often did this happen? I'm not sure we really knew how often it happened. And people will say that, oh, well, we need to make it legal so we can regulate it and it won't be under the table. Well, that's certainly not what has happened in the places where it's become legal. In, in Belgium and the Netherlands, places like that, someplace between 50 and 70% of them are reported. And, so, and if it's legal, how are you ever going to prove that you know, it was wrong. And all the elder abuse we have, how are you going to, you know, in, in Washington state and Oregon where they have assisted suicide, there's no requirement for, uh, an, your, your heir can help you sign up for it. And there's no required requirement for an, an unbiased. Did you witness. say your heir can sign up for it? Can help you sign up for it. Can take you to sign up for Just it. checking to see if my kids are here. No, you can't divorce them either. Okay. Yeah. But they can, somebody who stands to benefit from your estate can help you sign up for it. There's no oversight after the dose leaves the, the pharmacy. So even if you die of other causes, it's not recalled. It's just floating around in the community. And um, there's, no, there's no requirement for a dispassionate witness to be there. So if, uh, you know, Grandpa's sitting there and he sees all the stuff that's happened in Ethiopia with the plane crash and says, oh, I'd like to, I've got quite a bit of money. I'd like to send $5,000 over to the relief of those people over there. And, you know, Junior sitting there who's taking care of him, who's first on the will, says, not taking my $5,000, and smothers him with a pillow and flushes the stuff down the toilet. Who knows? You know, there's just no safeguards out there. You're giving people the, the, the opportunity to kill. And every single one of these laws, the onus, you, it, actually in Washington state, if you take the life, if you write the prescription, you are less liable to malpractice than if you treat the patient. Because the only standard you have to reach if you write that prescription is good faith, meaning that you did it in good faith. If you wrote the wrong prescription and the person suffered for three days or, you know, whatever, too bad. They can't prosecute you or do anything. If you treated that person and the chemotherapy didn't agree with them or whatever, they could sue you for that or sanction you for that, but not for writing the prescription. It's bizarre. So, I mean, the way that you talk about that, it seems as though in the places where it has been legalized, and I know this isn't the kind of argument, the way you want to make an argument always with talking about a slippery slope. Um, it's not a slope. It's a, it's a cliff. So where do you see it going? Oh, it's, in, into other areas of, of oh yeah, it yeah. already does. You know, already we. Um, I, I have firsthand knowledge of a, of a case of a person who was in a uh, 
in a nursing home. He had a, a chronic disease. His wife called a friend of mine who's a physician and said that uh, that euthanasia doctor has been to see him, and I think she's going to kill him. My friend, the doctor, went to see him. He was in a crappy nursing home, uh, but not dying anytime soon. And he said, well, you know, how is this doctor making the case that your death is reasonably foreseeable, et cetera, et cetera? And he said, well, she told me that I'm in bed almost all the time, and I could get bed sores, which I don't have yet, and they could become infected, which I, the bed sores that I don't have. And if I chose not to have them treated, then the infection could kill me. So my death is reasonably foreseeable. And she did. She euthanized him. You know, so these kinds of things are happening. I had another uh, phone call from a person in another city whose, whose neighbor was, the short story, the neighbor was basically euthanized because she couldn't find a family doctor and she had terrible back pain. And when the maid assessor doctor went in to see this person, she told her this and she said, well, I'll get people to sign. And she came back two weeks later and carried her out in an Afghan. You know, so... These things are happening around us here already. And, and for me, the really sad thing is we used to, when people were really desperate like that, we used to dig. What's the worst part of this for you? Why are you feeling this way? What can we do to help you? How can we come alongside you? And now it's just like, stay away from me. I don't want, I don't want any of your palliative care stuff. I don't want that. In fact, the law came in in June. And by the following September, when I attended the big international meeting in Montreal, McGill University already had statistics on people where the palliative care team had gone to visit them. And the, and the patients had just said, no, I don't want to see you. I'm just, I'm just going for this assisted death thing. I had another patient who wanted it because she was basically homeless. And she said, we, I was there with the nurse and said, well, what are, the nurse says, what are your plans for later on, you know, with, as you get weaker? Well, I talked to my oncologist, and he said that that assisted suicide, suicide thing was available, so I think I'll just do that. So this is not because of uncontrolled symptoms. This is a social determinant of health that's our problem, not her problem. There are a number of questions that have come in um, asking about advocacy, involvement, policy changes, lobbying, uh, okay. areas that Christians can be involved yeah. to support. Well. First of all, just coming tonight is so important because the number of people that I talk to when I'm, you know, on my little soapbox about this and they'll say, wow, that's really terrible. I hope we never get that euthanasia in Canada. You know, okay, we've had it now for three years. So just being informed is one thing. There's a group called the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, which um, sends out bulletins about things. There is something um, to help the doctors. There's a, a, a coalition for conscience that has that. The, one of the things that's going to go up on Realm is a four-page document that I have that's just resources. It's got scripture verses for some things, and it's all different resources. You can email me. Um, I think... Just keep your eyes open for what's going on. We had a really good public response when the first time that Fraser Health was trying to force euthanasia into the hospices, and we got that backed off, and then they all they did was change their their uh, leadership and bring it in at Christmas time. That's what they did. Yeah. It's, it's very... Do not expect a fair fight. It's very slimy. It's very underhanded. It's very, 
the words are twisted. Um, it's just not, but you just, I think you have to just get it clear in your own head that we as Canadians don't want to kill each other. That's the deal. You know, no, you can dress it up however you want to, but we're saying that death is a solution. We, we, we think that we're better than that. It's the, Talk uh, to your MPs, too. That's I was just going to say, so uh, the, the MP you've referred to a couple of times is yeah. our MP. Oh. So I'm encouraged to find out that well, she's... She, and then, you know, interesting. They said it was all about this other thing that was going on. But one of the interesting little side things about her change in cabinet is that she did stand firm. I mean, I think she spent quite a bit of political capital not to have those three things, children, advanced directive, and psychiatric conditions in at the very beginning. Now, when she got shuffled, the minister that they brought in to take on justice when this stuff is coming back to be reviewed is the only person who voted against the legislation when it came down because he thought it was too restrictive. So he's a big um, proponent of unrestricted euthanasia. To be clear, we're talking about uh, Minister... Wilson, Wilson Rabo was the first one. Who yeah. is, is it Vancouver South? Is that what the... She's... Granville South? Granville Center or something. It's great. This is my MP. I don't even know my riding. Yeah. She's not <laughs> my MP. Uh, I'll tell you where I live later, and that she's my MP. So... Yeah. Uh, but, but she's, I mean, Vancouver... Uh, she's and she's, if you've been Grand watching Bowl. the news at all, uh, she's been in the news a tad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, we've referenced this as, uh, several times, and I know I said this earlier, but for the sake of the recording as well, if you are looking for the information that Margaret's speaking about in terms of the extra resources, you can email us at info at ChristCityChurch.ca. If you're not part of the body of Christ City and you're not on Realm, uh, you can email us info at ChristCityChurch.ca. Just ask for the resources, and uh, we will fire those back to you. There's two other things besides those resources that are there. One is the copy. A, a, a PDF of the talk I gave at Regent about what the church can do, and it's got some practical suggestions. The other thing is um, in in the in the spring into the fall, a group of us wrote an article called "Euthanasia in Canada: A Cautionary Tale," and it talks about all the stuff that's gone on, and we published that in the World Medical Journal right before the big World Medical Association meeting. And at that meeting, they were going to try Canada and Belgium and some others were trying to force the World Medical Association to drop its opposition to euthanasia. And because of that article, so never think you're, you know, little guy with the finger in the dike, that, that they decided not to at that point. And the Canadian delegation was so furious that, that one of the people got up and said, don't listen to this garbage. Everything in that article has a complete footnote on it. You know, don't listen to them. They're telling you the untruth. And then they, they got up because at the, they've, they've left the World Medical Association over this. And, like but Canada? Canada left the World Medical Association, the CMA, the Canadian Medical Association. And the way they did, get this, they said the, the new president, who is an Isra- Israeli, got up and he gave his little speech. And he's not, English isn't his first language, and he'd had a speechwriter write it. And a little tiny bit of a paragraph were, was quoting a previous Canadian Medical Association president, and it was sort of white bread and motherhood things like, you know, we need to work together and do this. So it wasn't something. But the Canadian delegation figured out that he hadn't, he had not noted that this was Chris Simpson that was speaking. And they got up and called for his resignation because of his plagiarism. 
And when he refused to resign, he apologized. He said, gosh, I had a speechwriter. I didn't know. They walked out. They walked. They, they wanted to make it so that doctors could kill their patients without things. But plagiarism was one step too far. Now, it's, I'm not making this up. But the interesting thing is Sean Murphy with the Protection of Conscience Project says, all that shows us is that we agree that plagiarism is wrong. We don't all agree that killing patients is wrong. I have two more questions okay. for you. Thank you so much for taking okay. the, the time to answer these. Two more questions. One, what are some good resources uh, in terms of, have there been any books written? I mean, I, I mean you've referenced lots of articles and you've got your yeah. whole list. Uh, what would be the number one or two thing you would point the, like, pretend you're explaining this to yep. a five-year-old or me. Yeah. <laughs> um, what should I, I look at? I, to be honest, the, the first thing that I would do would be to get myself sorted out about suffering. Um, you can, you can figure out how to care for people, but figure out about the suffering. And I know there's some regent authors and everything, but one book that's really impressed me about suffering is Timothy Keller's book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's a little bit like a review article because he goes through, you know, different religions and everything. And then at the end of it, it's very pastoral. And he says, if you're suffering now, read the end first. And he has these absolutely astonishing, astonishing stories told in the first person of people who have suffered. And one dad who was super athletic and got a terrible, aggressive form of ALS, and he's, he's typing it out with his eyes blinking, his whole story. And he says when he first got it, he said to God, he said, Lord, you know, I'm so athletic. I have so much to give. Why are you taking me out of the game right now? And the answer he got back from God was, my son, I've just put you into the game. You know, well, that's a good... So that one I would do. And then just think about, talk to people, ask them what would help. Uh, my favorite thing that one of, our set of, one of our patients in Halifax thought up was they got a notebook and they wrote down everything they needed help with. And they said, we put in a few lame things so that if people said, you know, if there's anything we could do and we handed them the notebook, then they could save face by you know, mail our letters for us, you know, or whatever, you know, it was, but they would put stuff in there and then people could sign up. So I think in the age now of the internet and everything, it would be really easy to, I have kind of tweaked that a little. I said, sit down with somebody who's suffering a serious illness or someone who's, you know, going through a bad time or whatever. It doesn't have to be somebody who's dying and say, um, what would help you? And then one person does that, you know, you can get a bossy firstborn like me to go in and say, okay, you know, you got to tell us what you need, but here's my parameters. Make it time limited and make it specific. So instead of, can you take some meals to these people? Can you take dinners on Tuesday night for the month of April? Oh, I can do that. And then at the end of April, you call back and say, can you do it for May? Well, no, I'm going to be away, but I'll get Susie to do it for May or whatever. So you time limited, specific, and then just what the people really need. And that that's good. And, and don't be afraid to go in and, and um, be there. They really, people need your presence. You remember Job's comforters? He called the miserable physicians. They, how long did they sit there without saying anything? Do you remember? Seven days. They just sat there. We, we kind of say, oh, those stupid guys. I couldn't sit there seven days without opening my big it's, mouth. It's the best thing they did. It was the best thing they did. <laughs> and, you know, people, people say, you know, I've had 
a real good friend, friends that lost children. And they said that, you know, some people said stupid things like, oh, he's with Jesus now. You know, don't say that. And, um, you know, other things like that. But people who came and made mistakes, they forgave. It was the people who were afraid to come and didn't come at all that hurt the most. And so just keep your eyes open. If you say something and the person kind of looks, just oops, you know, I'm sorry. What I said something wrong there. I'm, I'm really sorry. Just apologize. That's, that's what it's about. You know, keep your spidey senses going, figure out how to help people and then reevaluate. If you do stuff for a week and they said, well, that really helped, but I don't really need anybody to, to vacuum the house anymore. Think really practically about it. I asked my friend, uh, Annie, uh, her dad died when he was only 50. And I said, you know, what would you suggest for somebody who is um, to help somebody who's dying? What would you suggest they do? She said, the dishes, you know, come over. And this can be a um, an amazing witness. My dad didn't become a believer until he was 85 years old. Got baptized when he was 85. Hallelujah. Anyway, when my mom was dying uh, many years before that, um, I said, oh, I don't need to get any meals right now because, you know, uh, I want to maybe later when I'm taking care of my mom. And one of my friends said, Margaret, you've given so many meals to people that we could give you meals for the next two years and you wouldn't be paid back. So snap out of it and let us help you. So we started getting these meals. And I had actually moved away from that town in June, and this was in September and October. And one of the, it was, the announcement was made at our church, and this young couple, this woman, um, I have not met her to this day because I was out when she delivered the meal. She was a new bride, and she made this beautiful meal with homemade preserves. You know how it is, ladies, when you've married the first two months. Anyway, <laughs> was all beautiful, was all beautiful. And she brought this meal to the house, and my dad, who wasn't a believer, said, how do you know this person? And I said, I don't know her. Well, how did she bring this meal? And I said, well, she brought it because she's part of my Christian family and she's loving me. And my dad could not get over that. That's part of his conversion story. So you never know what this is going to be. And, you know, uh, and it doesn't have to be a meal like that. It can be even stuff from Costco or things that you've picked up. You know, I started trying to do all those Betty Crocker things when we were first married. We got married right before third year medical school started. And I and all the other Christian guys were coming with homemade lemon bread and their lunches and everything. And my poor husband, so I was staying up late, burning myself, trying to make lemon bread and doing this and being upset about the house and all these things. And Rob finally says, look, if you don't stop this, I'm putting a sign on the door that says, I make the mess, leave my wife alone. Now just come to bed. So... So he he didn't need he didn't get lemon bread after that. Final question. Yep. If you only had time to say one thing to someone contemplating assisted mm. suicide, what would it be? I think I would want to know uh, a little bit more about the person first, and I would say, you know, why? <laughs> you know, what what's the worst part of this for you? That is my favorite question to ask. You know, what's the worst part of this for you? And the interesting thing is the answers I get. You know, it's not always, oh, I got this pain here, or I wish I didn't feel like throwing up or whatever. It's, you know, I've got this brother back in Montreal I haven't spoken to for 10 years. Or when I was 16, I gave a baby up for adoption. You know, some of this stuff that comes out, and you've got a chance to come alongside that if they just had 
euthanasia, they're, they're not going to be healed of that stuff. And I guess for me, it's just, uh, Balfour wrote this letter to the Supreme Court after the decision talking about what he would do if somebody really wanted to go through with this. You sit down and you look them in the eye and say, what's, what's the worst part of this? How can we help you? How can we bring joy back to you? You are important to us. We, we love you. And it's not just about you. It's about us. We need to love you. Let us love you. And, but that happens in different ways for different people. There's not a one-size-fits-all to that. But don't be afraid to get your hands dirty on this. You know, there's a, a plant called a stinging nettle. You know, maybe you've seen it. And you notice that if you brush up against it, it really hurts because it's got these little syringe caps. And you knock the syringe caps off, and it's got these little things, and it injects this poison into you, and it hurts. But if you grab it really hard like that, it crushes that. And some people swear by nettle tea and other things. And I think it's a little bit like that when you're around people who um, are hurting and suffering, that if you brush up against it, you re- it really stings when you're on the outskirts. But if you get in there and you get dirty and you carry Mr. Frodo, <laughs> you do all those things, there's stuff that cannot be taken from you that you don't get any other way. I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Uh, Dr. Cottle, thank you so much you're for welcome. taking the time Thanks to for come. Staying. <laughs> Here Be Dragons is a podcast of Christ City Church in Vancouver. You can find us online at herebedragonspodcast.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dragon Podcast.